This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Senate is back in session today from recess, mainly to work on the annual defense authorization bill. Traditionally, Congress sends this bill to the president before the end of the calendar year. For more on this and what else is happening in Congress, we turn to WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, let's start with the NDAA. The Senate is the one that's pretty much behind on this, correct? That's correct. This is a rare moment in the middle of all the run-up to the midterm elections where senators are actually going to get together. It's going to be pretty bare bones today in connection with getting on this defense authorization bill, but they thought that they needed to do something this week just to get the ball rolling for later on after the midterms when they'll actually vote on it. But they have to do some procedural work here. And then there's also, as you know, there's always a lot of amendments. There's actually more than 900 amendments on this uh, Senate NDAA. Obviously, they won't get to all of those, but they do have to kind of sort things out. It was the House that approved the $850 billion NDAA during the summer. That is kind of the rough guidelines of what we're going to be looking at. It includes a 4.6% pay increase for military personnel. Civilians in the Defense Department would get 2.4% increase, and it also includes some other things like a bonus for people in the Defense Department who make less than $45,000 a year. Also, the bill in the House version, at least, sets a $15 minimum wage for federal contract workers. So the Senate version is slightly higher than the House bill, but it is expected to pass again after the midterms. And as you well know, the Congress rarely does anything like clockwork. Uh, This has, however, for six decades been passed, and it does look like it'll eventually be on track to pass and get reconciled between the two chambers. Well, they do do things like clockwork, but just not like a clock we would want to know the time of day (laughs) by looking at. What about inflation adjustment for contractors? That's something that's widely hoped for you know, among that community. There's been a lot of effort to try to get more pay for federal contract workers just because there has been so much attrition, frankly, and a lot of the retention has been difficult to have. A lot of House lawmakers wanted to get this $15 minimum wage for federal contractors in. And then also with this inflation bonus for people making under $45,000, it's hoped that they can, again, try to get more people involved in the whole governmental process and keep them there because uh, retention just seems to be a real issue ongoing every year, and lawmakers are usually very concerned about that. So then what does this all mean? If the Senate gets this work done, then there's still the whole reconciliation with the House, correct? That's right. So they still have a lot of work to do, particularly on the Senate side, with all the authorizations that have to take place. Really, the House has been way ahead of this, which often happens. The Senate still has to basically go through all the authorization bills when they get back through the lame duck session. And there's still a lot of question about how that's going to be done. The stopgap measure that was passed before lawmakers left goes through December 16th. A lot of lawmakers would really like to just get everything done and push it into the next year because obviously if you have a change in one of the chambers or even both of the chambers with Republicans taking over for Democrats, that really stirs things up and changes a lot of the priorities for spending. So there's going to be a real hard push, I think, after the midterm elections to try to get something that's longer term than just another kick the can down the road type of thing. But we'll see. There's a lot of House Republicans who say they don't want to sign off on anything until, you know, after these elections are over with. And they have really pushed back on some of the things that Democrats wanted to do. That was the main reason many of the House Republicans actually voted against the bill that would have uh, and did prevent the um, government shutdown. We are speaking with Mitchell Miller. He is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And so 
just then review the schedule that we can expect from Congress between the midterm elections coming up. Golly, it's really just a few weeks away now. Right, exactly. So we're going to go through the midterms and then the Senate will come back. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has indicated that he thinks that they are going to have to get a lot done, as we've just alluded to, over the next couple of months before the end of the year. So they're going to have to really move fast in the Senate side. I think that they do have kind of the framework there. So I think that they will get on these bills relatively quickly after everything sorts out from the midterms, although we'll have to see because it could be complicated. For example, um, with a 50-50 Senate, we may not know which party actually controls the Senate for quite some time after the election. So that could push back things. And then if there's any kind of elections that are, you know, challenged or anything like that, I think the House will be a little bit more straightforward. It still looks like Republicans are probably going to pick up anywhere from 15 to 20 seats, and that will likely change things there. And then on top of all of that, then you still have the January 6th hearings that need to be wrapped up and a report that has to take place before the end of the year. Uh, That last hearing, the January 6th hearing, is this Thursday. And then they may put out an interim report, but then they will definitely put out a full report, again, likely to be at the end of December because they want to push it all the way toward the end because under the way the legislation is written for the committee, they have to basically disband unless they're reauthorized after uh, 30 days after the report is issued. So they basically want to take that report to the end of the year so that they can continue to gather evidence as long as they can. All right. You know, the military talks about the color of money, but sometimes the party of money comes up. And what about Florida appropriations? I mean, we had California burning and there was money. Now we have parts of Florida, unfortunately, drowning because of the hurricane. So is that all a settled issue? What kind of money Florida will get from federal coffers? That's really interesting because it's not a a settled issue at this point. Within the stopgap measure that was passed before lawmakers left, it included nearly $19 billion in disaster assistance. And a lot of that was for those previous things that you mentioned, wildfires, earlier flooding, earlier hurricanes. Interestingly enough, there's been surprise, surprise, a political back and forth over that because many House Republicans voted against that, even ones from Florida, Democrats pointing that out, although the Republicans said it was loaded with other things and that's why they voted against it. But now the Florida congressional delegation, including its two senators, is all pushing for basically a all or nothing bill that would only give emergency aid to Florida. Frankly, I just don't see that happening. You know, it's understandable because they they don't want other ways or anything put on that bill. But as you're well aware, usually natural disaster legislation at least it had a history at one point of being relatively benign, that everybody said, well, all these different states need money for different things. This is a little bit different. So I'll be interested to see how they actually move forward on that or if it, again, gets kind of lumped into other types of things. You know, obviously, Puerto Rico is still pushing for disaster assistance there, and there's a whole variety of things happening in other states. So I would be surprised if it only stuck with the Sunshine State. Sure, and people in Miami would like to have mangrove-covered islands put in for flood mitigation. Right. Nothing to do with the hurricane, but just in case. Yeah, That's the kind yeah. of thing they don't want to slip in, I guess. Yeah, exactly. There's all these different uh, things that can actually mitigate potential storm damage and a variety of things related to wildfires and what have you. And a lot of members of Congress would like to see that, but I, I just don't see that happening. 
And just a final question on the idea of boosting staffing of the Federal Protective Service. That came up on the Hill, too. I guess, was that in connection with the January 6th idea? Well, it was overall looking at both Capitol Police related to January 6th, and then that also caused lawmakers to say, well, what's going on with basically federal protection of all these thousands of federal facilities, not only here in Washington, but across the country? And a panel of the House Appropriations Committee was looking at this, and basically it was acknowledged that there is not full strength for the Federal Protective Service. And what that means, at least in the eyes of many lawmakers, is there's just not enough protection for a lot of these federal facilities. Now, of course, they get thousands of contracted employees and guard staff, but really many lawmakers just do not think there's enough protection there. You know, you have this increase that has been documented by uh, the Homeland Security officials who say that the FBI itself, the IRS, the National Archives, in connection with the dispute involving former President Trump, all of them have received increased threats. And then you and I have talked about earlier, lawmakers have actually undergone a lot more threats here on Capitol Hill in the wake of January 6th. And they're still trying to hire about 200 Capitol Police officers for that. They also want to hire about the same number of additional federal law enforcement officers who would also protect these other federal facilities. So it's interesting. There's a lot of concern here on Capitol Hill related to security and federal workers. Well, I guess maybe the age of social media amplifies people's concerns in a way that makes them irrational. And you're seeing this manifest against people of goodwill, even from both sides. Right, exactly. I mean, we know that over the years, of course, the IRS was obviously a likely target of ire from people, but it was usually a little bit more benign, I would say. It was kind of more of a grumbling kind of thing where these social media sites are actually advocating some type of violence in many cases or taking some kind of action. And that's what really has federal investigators concerned. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. 
Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. 
Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader too is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in this in this sense. Looking back, what what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, 
So there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield. And this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.